Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was really the catalyst of our industry's racial reckoning that this organization came together to create resources, to create support, um, and to create a community to, to process together. We need to talk about songs. Somebody has to make conversation. People talk while dancing. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Ost, and this is Theater Resources Unlimited. It's our Friday community gathering. It's January 28th. We're all sitting with bated breath, waiting for a snowstorm to completely cover our our city here uh, in New York. Those of you who are not in New York, you may be getting some weather of different sorts. I know we have somebody from Palm Springs, and uh, sunny and beautiful in Palm Springs. And down in Australia, Emma, I don't know, I don't think you're expecting snow down there. But here we are talking about, well, we started off talking about COVID and, and pandemic and isolation and, and all these other, other things. And now that we're in a place where we are starting to see a future that is not isolated anymore, that a future that actually where we can all uh, socialize and go out, be part of a, of a group again. So the conversations are changing a little bit. Today, we're going to have a difficult conversation. I'll just, just say it frankly. It's just it's just a hard conversation. It's a conversation that a lot of people have avoided having for, for a long time. And now we're all just sort of owning it and saying there's stuff going on and we have to acknowledge it. And we have to really, uh, we at least have to talk about it. It would be nice if we could do something about it too. But at least talking about it is a start. So I want you to meet uh, some special guests today. I'm very, very proud and pleased to have Adam Heinemann and Tara Moses uh, with me today. Adam and, and Tara, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit, but, bit about Broadway for Racial Justice. That's just a hint for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about today, the controversy that we're going to wade into. Tara, say hi. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you too. So he's Jay Stongo, Terato Chefkados. Um, so hello everyone. My name is Tara Moses. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, as well as Muskogee Creek. And I'm calling in from Narragansett land, or what is colonially known as Providence, Rhode Island. I am indeed from Oklahoma, so I do have a Southern accent. I like to warn people because it tends to be a surprise. But with that, I am a director, a playwright, um, the artistic 
director of Red Eagle Soaring, which is a 31-year-old uh, Native youth theater based in Seattle. I'm also the co-founder of Groundwater Arts and lots of other things, including on the advisory board for Broadway for Racial Justice. And I think I'll leave it there for now and throw it over to you, Adam. Well done, Adam. Hi, folks. My name is Adam Heinemann. My pronouns are he, him. I'm joining today from Lenape Hoking, um, land of the Lenape, Muncie Lenape, also known as Harlem, New York. And I am a producer, performer, and activist. I um, currently work with Octopus Theatricals, um, producing projects as well as um, performing in the company of Town. I was a producer for The Inheritance, and I sit on the board of directors for Broadway for Racial Justice, as well as the board of Pipeline Theater Company and Producer Hub. So a lot of my work is centered at the intersection of anti-racism and artistry, and um, I'm very happily a facilitator in many different spaces and communities, sometimes with Tara, which is wonderful because, you know, the conversation that you kind of opened us up with Bob is certainly one that is uh, crucial, important, can be difficult at times. But my work with with Tara has has al also always proven to be generative. Um, the conversation can be joyful and hopeful as well. It's just about what season and what um, kind of access point we are in the conversation, right? And that's so much like life, right? Where we are is indicative of the experience. So I'm really happy to be sharing space with you all and to be connecting here. Thank you. Well, I have to clarify that when I say it's a difficult conversation, it's a difficult conversation for those of us who haven't been used to having it. You, you, you guys, thank God, have been have been having this conversation for a long time. I've got a whole lot of questions for you to 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 sort of collect some background information for everybody. Um, when did when was a Broadway for Racial Justice created, and uh, and what was what was the impetus for it? Sure, Broadway for Racial Justice was a collective um, that is now a not for profit, founded in the summer of two thousand and twenty. While the members that um, galvanized together have been active in the realms and the dialogue of equity, diversity, inclusion, um, and anti-racism, it was really the catalyst of our industry's racial reckoning that this organization came together specifically for this purpose to serve need, to create resources, to create support, um, and to create a community to, to process together, predominantly in the um, empowerment of BIPOC folks and artists working through this time, but it is spanned into a multi-pronged approach and movement to support uh, theater making at every ecosystem, from community theater to the regional um, market, as well as uh, conservatories and training programs, and of course, in the commercial theater realm um, in New York. I'm, I'm trying to, I want to give it a little, little bit of an historical per perspective, a, a, a timeline perspective for, for, for people. Which, which happened first? Do we see White America or Broadway for Racial Justice? Uh, how long have we really been actively dealing with the issues of lack of equity and diversity in, in theater? How long has it, has it been really 
an effective conversation that people, I mean, it's always been a rote conversation for, for, for liberals. You know, liberals have the rote conversation and, and, and nothing ever changes. I think that we're at a point where, where things are able to change now. I'm sort of heaping a lot of questions on top of questions, aren't I? Uh, sure. Yeah, where, where, where would you like to start? The front of the question, uh, we see when America was announced before Broadway for Age Justice. Is that right, Adam? Great. I'm also trying to keep my timelines square. <laughs> yeah, the, ti the timeline is, I, it's not crucial, but it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, in regards to the question of like, well, when did all of this movement start? I mean, the truth of the matter is since time immemorial, <laughs> <laughs> like this movement towards racial justice and equity, especially in the theater, has been happening and there have been like sweeping changes since, you know, I think back to like the, um, like to the Black Federal Theater Project in like the 50s, 60s, right? Before then, like 1950s, 60s for folks here. And before then as well, um, I just think what I, what I find to be so interesting is, is that there are so many folks who have just been so deep within their own white supremacy that they haven't noticed this movement's been going on a long, long time until it became trendy to pay attention uh, in the summer of 2020. Adam, do you want to throw anything else? Yeah, and I think it's it's certainly crucial to locate where we are right in the conversation and how I think the conversation, as, as Tara has been saying, which has been relegated to the fringes of society, became part of the zeitgeist because of these intersecting crises that we were, that we've been dealing with, right? The, the fact that the pandemic and the, um, the isolation and um, quarantine that we were all forced to kind of be within our own experience, reckoning a lot of things at the time, you know, the killing and the murder of George Floyd could have been just another awful killing that happens all the time in America. Right. I, I, I don't yes. have to share with anyone on, on this, this, um, I mean, we can reach. We can reach back to Rodney King. We can reach back to all sorts of of, of examples over the years. The thing that's been just outrageous from the point of view of, of the the the, uh, the BIPOC culture in general is the fact that as many times as we've acknowledged that there's a problem, we as a country and as a society have rarely done anything that is stuck that has really made a change. And I think when George Floyd was shot for whatever reason it was, I guess it was because we were meditative, we were, we were in, in pandemic, we were in shutdown, we could actually notice things and not have life like be an excuse for us to, to not act and not react. So suddenly, George, there, was, there were others during the pandemic, even before George Floyd, but George Floyd just seemed to be the last straw. And and it, it, it gives me hope. I don't know how far we've come since then, but we're not, in terms of a, the span of, of cultural change, we're, we're, we haven't gone that far. We're not that far from that. that we're still re reacting to that incident. So, and also in terms of, you know, expectation setting, you know, we have a certain amount of time here together to talk about this. We have a certain amount of time here on 
this planet, you know, and time is relative, which if we're so lucky, Tara might indulge us in a, a bit more of, of that philosophy. But the the idea that our our pursuit and our active collective struggle for equity and social justice is is not results based right it, it can't be it actually has to be relationship based right we okay. can't think about it as we can't that's that's a manageable it. way of looking at it yeah we can't think about it as an end result because we're so deeply entrenched in the systems that we operate in that we we can't necessarily say that it is a black and white issue it's part of our our collective consciousness and responsibility that we need to be active in this work. Uh, Carolyn Brown corrects me, and, and, and you're, you're right, and I knew that too. It, George Floyd wasn't shot; he was he was suffocated with a knee on his chest. So, I apologize for lumping that into a, a other experiences that we've been through. But it was the killing; it was the killing of, of yet another black man, senseless senselessly and, um, and brutally. Um, we are all, all of us who look like me are basically clothed in, in, in white entitlement. I mean, we just, it was handed to us when we were born. And it's very hard to continually recognize areas in which we need to be better and we need to be more, more uh, aware. So you want to, Tara, to go a little bit more into that philosophy, and I'm I'm hooked. I'm interested. I'd like to know what more do you bring to this conversation, and I'll bet there's a lot. Oh gosh, yes, yeah, so many things. Uh, so as Adam mentioned, time is relative. So especially in the theater, we are so intertwined with this like capitalism driven, product driven, you know, how many shows can we put up? How many people can we exploit? How much money can we make in such a short amount of time? You know, the theater itself in the United States, as it currently stands in the mainstream, mainstream is colonial, is rooted in white supremacy. And it's all about exploiting humans, predominantly uh, Black, Indigenous and other humans of color. <laughs> to, you know, make all of this money, right? Anyway, and so with that, time is something that I've heard so much. Um, you know, I am a producer, I understand. Anyway, oh, we can't do this because of time. Oh, because of time's sake, we can't dive into this issue of racism that has now occurred. We need to move on, so on and so forth. Anyway, so this is an adage um, that comes from my specific Seminole peoples, you know, Southeastern indigenous folks that, I don't know, 50,000, 90,000 bunch years old, that is time is relative. So an example is if you're with your grandma and you're taking her to bingo, that's the example I use, choose, and she needs a little bit more time to get out of the car, are you going to be mad at her, uh, try to rush her? No, you're going to give her the time that she needs to get out of the car. And in turn, she's, of course, going to bake you cookies, be the best grandma we all want, <laughs> right? And so that's the same thing with time. So time is relative in that, number one, it's made up, like, who cares? And number two, time is a relative. We have a personal relationship with time, and time takes care of us as we take care of it. And so with that, if we're crouching up against deadlines and why are we blaming time for that? Let's just move it. Who cares? Like, 
theater is not killing nobody, nor is it saving no lives. So like we can move things around, you know, I feel as though, especially in the theater, like in all industries, and I've worked in many, theater is the worst about this. It's all about, oh no, because of time this, time that. And folks wonder why they don't never have enough time for things. It's because they're abusing a relative. If you're abusing me as a relative, yeah, I'm going to take care of you either. So it's a really simple adage to take away the colonization of time, because that's something that was brought by colonizers to this, like to these lands that didn't exist beforehand. Um, into other indigenous lands globally. That's a very European colonized concept. Anyway, we're actually able to number one, prioritize one another as humans and as relations. And then number two, we get more work done and people feel better because we care more about humans than we do about products and dollars. And we get to stop blaming grandmother time who didn't do nothing wrong other than, you know, develop arthritis over age and need a little bit more time, get out the car. Um, so that's how I tend to explain it. And that time is quite literally relative and that it doesn't exist. It's all arbitrary. And number two is an actual entity who we engage with like we would with another relation. Now, I understand this may be some news to a lot of people. Uh, I am very native. So, <laughs> you know, some people tend to be like a little ah about it. But what I can tell you is that this is tried and true here. It's tried and true global indigenous communities. And I'm just saying, y'all, if 99% of the world uh, has been living by this and living by this successfully, then there ain't no reason why the 1% who ever heard about this before needs to doubt it. Well, let me let me ask you. I mean, I understand the metaphysics of what you're saying, and, I, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually a deeply spiritual person, so I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. Just in terms of the pragmatic, in terms of the empirical, in terms of the, the world that we're in, is it fair to say that in spite of the fact that we've been aware of the issues that, that we're dealing with for centuries, in spite of the fact that, that many of us own the fact that we're a, a colonist uh, country, we basically... Uh, are here at, at the expense of your people. Doesn't it still feel, even though time is a relative and time is relative, doesn't, doesn't it simply still feel a little frustrating that we've moved so slowly in in addressing this, mm-hmm. making inclusion a priority? Yeah, I mean, speaking for my own self, yeah, it's real tiring because it must be exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, all the time, every day, when your, you know, identity is debated at the Supreme Court every single day, you know, it's pretty Uh. fun. Um, But, you know, I mean, I say all the time, like, if white folk would have just been listening to the leadership of Black and Indigenous and other leaders of color in this country, we done been fixed by now. Um, But, you know, white supremacy is a thing that people it's, like. It's, it's an armor. It's, it's, it's hard right. and it's hard to break through. It's really an armor for some, right. some of us. Some of us, it's become more of a sweater, but for, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a stiff in place armor that, that just is immutable and makes them un, unwilling to even face the possibility that there is a problem. Mm-hmm. And there are a yeah. lot of people in this country who still take the position that there is no problem. Yeah, and I would say oh, yeah. that's also indicative of, I think, the success, right? The success of white supremacy. You know, we can start naming things and just using it as object- objective data, right? That strategy for um, global expansion <laughs> that was used became very successful, right? And it, it creates a very structured way of thinking, right? A hierarchical way of thinking that has permeated in other 
ways of being that have permeated in all areas of society and it's been very successful right so it's hard to break that the mentality that this isn't completely entwined with life right but this is actually a way of structuring life that has been successful you know as as tara was saying there have been so many different modalities life and so many different modalities that indigenous cultures have implemented right we're completely steeped in a particular modality of structure hierarchy that's based in one way of, of thinking so it's hard for us of course because we live and breathe and swim in it every day to think that there's anything else but that's just indicative of the success of and I think to offer, um, in case there's folks who are there who are feeling um, like a little on edge or some like a little alarm bells ringing, you know, don't worry, y'all, I understand. Anyway, um, about hearing, you know, out of myself and other folks of color, if you if you're in relationship with those with folks uh, about like the frustration and the anger that we harbor and hold, which is 100 percent valid and real and could have been avoided. But what I always, what I would have loved for you all to walk away with, just one of the things, is that the time you start is the right time. You know, you needed the time that you needed. Again, this is part of time being relative. We take care of it. So, like, I'm not angry at anyone who needed this much time to understand the gravity of the problem and the solutions that are at hand. Absolutely not. Um, because again, that's part of the time being relative. But it's if we want to move forward together, it's also about meeting people where they're at and where you are at and being able to take them forward. Uh, now, don't misconstrue. That's not me, you know, there to handhold your emotions as you work through your white fragility. That ain't for me. That's for your fellow white friends. But that's just something I hope that folks leave today's conversation with feeling hopeful and inspired that if today's the day for you to start taking steps, awesome, great, glad you're here. Uh, and to not beat yourself up or feel um, upset about it or, you know, aversely feel angry at myself or Adam. But how can you be mad at Adam? It's impossible. So mainly me, you know? <laughs> uh, anyway. Look at that thing. Look at that, right. look at that punim, said the Jewish guy. Look at that punim. You can't be mad at that punim. But that's, that's so good, Tara, because the idea that, you know, it's about doing better when we know better. Right? Well, I want to go back to the concept of time because I, I just want to put an underline under something that we almost said or even may have actually said. We had time for the last two years. That's the big difference right now is that people had no excuse to run away from this. We were sitting in our apartments saying, what am I going to do with myself? Oh my goodness, look at what's happening. Yeah. I, maybe I should think about that more. I think that COVID, oh God, I hate to say this. I think COVID was a gift from God. I think God was just fed up and said, go to your room and think about what you've done, everyone. And, and basically, I think that that is, I think, helps support the movement forward that has been staggering up till now. And it, it's just, it's been, it's been frustrating for some of us. I can't tell you the number of times, I'm 70 years old, I can't tell you the, the number of times in my life where I've sat and gone, wow, now something's going to change. And for a week, a month, it looks like it will, and there's a little wiggle, and nothing really happens. And then we're back to where we were. I've, it's happened decade after decade, year after year. I choose to believe, I declare 
that this is a different time. I declare that because we've had time to really think about it and we've been sitting in isolation and haven't been able to let time be an excuse for not doing what we need to do and not thinking what we need to think. I, I just... I want to believe it. I just want to believe that this is it. That this is the, this is the turning point. Yeah. Do you think that it? Radical do you think there's a good a chance? I mean, every moment I think has the opportunity to be a radical shift in certainly our own ecosystem systems. That's that's very much in line with the idea of emergent strategy. That we can all be operating in ripple effects. That we can all be doing our own portion where it's it's not about one person carrying an outsized portion for the world it's up for us to be having this conversation and to realize oh this is what i can do today this is how i can continue to be reciprocal in my relationships this is how i can make a choice that can move the needle in my ecosystem in my little pond which will also continue these ripple effects and Every yeah, every day has that that opportunity for a turning turning moment. But um, but I want to actually trust. throw in my throw in my my words of frustration. In spite of what we've gone through, and in spite of what we think we've learned, voting rights are being suppressed. Brazenly, brazenly suppressed. What 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 can we do? What we can what can we do to to assure that the the country is not going to go back? Well, I have a really direct, very practical uh, answer to that question for every white person on this call. What you can do, you have an obligation, not me, not Adam, not any other person of color. You have the obligation to educate your own people, right? Because I know this whole, oh, we don't talk about politics at Thanksgiving. First of all, anyway, but you know what I mean? Y'all got family members. I know each and every one of you do. Um, who Tara, are I just want to—I want to say I, I don't have the 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 family members at Thanksgiving who don't talk about politics, but I got to tell you that that it's a brutal conversation for some families. Um, and what I'm telling you is what's more brutal is, is that my people continually get killed in this country. Adam's peoples continually be killed in this country. It may be difficult to have conversations, but what's more upsetting when I hear that excuse, Bob, if I may be frank, is, it is an excuse, is because white folks' fragility and white supremacy manifests in prioritizing your own comfort over the literal lives of other people. All right, I ain't here to play the oppression Olympics, but like this is a stated fact. Anyway, and so what I want you all to do is have those difficult conversations and don't have excuses about it. Because if you want to honestly know why we have not progressed, it's because of excuses rooted in white fragility as such. And I really want to hand it over to Adam if there's anything you want to add here. So I think it's important. <laughs> yeah, I think that it, that's what it comes down to, the interrogation of our own comfort, right? The idea that change hasn't happened is because people have made decisions to prioritize not making change, right? Well, I just I just want to say because 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 I've I've been put on the defensive, so I'm going to be defensive. Uh, uh, the conversation. The you're the interrupting Adam. Please don't interrupt Adam. This right here, Bob. I want to be frank. What you're doing by interrupting Adam there—that's inserting your white supremacy into the room. That may be hard to sit with. I was going to okay. ask a question. Well, Adam wasn't done speaking. Okay. I think it's great if he could finish speaking first. And by all means, ask questions. 
So, so part of the thought that I, I want to finish was just about the prioritization of comfort, right? And it's, it's kind of to tie up a bow on your initial question about why hasn't change happened? And we hope for it. I think all well-intentioned people, right, hope that progress will happen and change will happen because we understand that change is actually going to benefit all of us together. But the reason it doesn't happen is because of our micro choices, that we prioritize comfort, our own circumstance, instead of prioritizing the responsibility we have to be uncomfortable with the uncomfortable things. And that's privilege. That's just, that's privilege. We have the ability to say, I'm privileged enough to say, I'm going to choose the comfort instead of my responsibility to make shifts for the prioritization of people who are in the survival place. I'm saying my comfort is more important than somebody else's survival. And that's just privilege. Okay, what I was trying to say is that a lot of us are having those conversations. The problem that we're having is that the people who hold the other point of view in our families don't listen. I, I, I don't know, how, we don't know how to get through to them. So it's not that we don't have the conversation and it's not that I don't feel that I have white fragility, but I, maybe I do. I actually am, I'm here having a conversation with you. I knew it was gonna be a difficult one and I faced that and I'm, I'm, I'm doing it anyway because I think it needs to be done. We also, many of us in our families, have people that are frankly crazy. And I don't know, we don't know how to have those conversations with the people that aren't listening to us. And not only are not listening to us, but are mocking us and being angry at us and yelling at us. So. Well, you don't have to prioritize their comfort. <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable when I'm being yelled at. Um, all right. All right. I mean, Sounds also like outside of your families. Yes. Thank you. I don't know who unmuted, <laughs> but therapy. Great. Let's go. Let's all go to therapy. Anyway, if you're having issues with this uncomfortability, um, but also it doesn't just stop with your families. It goes on to your friends. It goes on to your coworkers. It goes on to your representative representatives in the government. Cause I can tell you from firsthand experience, the government, like our, like, uh, representatives, senators, so on and so forth on both the uh, local, state, and national level pay more attention to a white person's voice than they do to mine. And so that is who your community is. It's the community of the larger white folk in whom you have relationships with. And don't get me wrong, don't we all got that Uncle Billy Bob and ain't nothing gonna change his mind? Fine. We want, our goal is to make those folks be the outlier. Great. If you've done everything inhumanly possible to try to get through to said person and it doesn't work, okay, great, move on. You have thousands of folks who you can be in conversation with. Anyway, and so again, when the buck stops in folks' own internalized fragility, that's why progress doesn't happen. That's why it doesn't happen. Let's try to turn this to the back to theater for a second, if we can. What we saw happen uh, this past year as a result of We See You White America and other things that have, have raised awareness, we've seen an effort being made to have more BIPOC voices heard on Broadway. Uh, we've had a lot more, doesn't mean it's enough, but we've had a lot more plays that have opened that have been 
by BIPOC writers and produced produced by a BIPOC team. And how do you see that as as helping or or not the whole cause that we're trying to do in terms of changing the perception of of our Broadway theater goer? Well, we certainly need to see work that is reflective of of the societies that we're in, right? I think it's it's a great thing to to be intentional about including different narratives, including different storytellers, right? And I think it's particularly important for those stories and for all all roads to be two-way, for us to be building reciprocal relationships across all of these opportunities for engagement. What the uh, indicator will be is whether these intentions for more inclusion and diversity are also systemic, if they're going to be a part of a movement rather than versus just a moment, right? So that is also something that time will tell. We'll see how these relationships are built in reciprocal ways, or if the intention is simply, let's do the BIPOC show, right? Well, the, the, also great. the practical, pro oh, I'm sorry, Tara, go ahead. No, I was like, it's also great to mention that there are like pr producing organizations that um, can help assist. You know, I really want to shed a light on the theater industry standard group that Adam is one of the co-founders for. And I would love, Adam, want to talk a little bit about it, just so folks know that this exists. Yeah, TISG, uh, I'll put a, a, a link in later. It's the um, industry standard group and it's an say, say it again, we, we didn't hear you. Well, the industry standard group and it is an organization that is looking to interject into commercial producing with access truly at the forefront right as you all know broadway and commercial theater utilizes a particular type of financing right accredited investors are invited to participate in regulation d offerings, right? This is this is held by the SEC and Broadway productions and those capitalizations have to protect certain individuals, non-accredited folks from um, the liability. However, we know that these uh, systems implemented by the SEC to protect folks without a comfortable level of assets also prevent those same folks from participating in many things in our financial um, system and economy that can grow wealth, right? So how can we, at the same time as protecting folks who might not be accredited investors, also open the door up? So the Industry Standard Group is, is really rooted in the idea of collective economics where we can join together. And this is actually very new from the SEC um, as of 2020, where a new regulation called CF has opened up to allow um, for certain accredited uh, profiles to open the door to anyone to be a part of a producing or an investing conglomerate. So that we're the first model to implement this into commercial theater. And we're truly building it in the service of all people by building it to uplift and empower BIPOC folks. So you can check out the, the link more. There's a lot to check out, but- To um, the best of your knowledge, 
there have been, I think, seven seven BIPOC plays that have opened on Broadway. With an, I think an eighth is now open. So it's been a what we perceive as a stream compared to the, the past. Um, have they had a lot of? Uh, I know the BIPOC. I know the producers have been. Many of them have been African American, Black, um, but. Has, has there proved to be an investor pool uh, in, from the uh, BIPOC community that actually can, can support and does support theater? I don't, I don't know. I'm just asking. Uh, sure. I think that's also part of our responsibility and our kind of our, our, our work to continue to make theater accessible to all of our populations, right? I think that's one reason why raising, you know, is hard in general, right? Because oftentimes it's so much easier to just raise from the same people who already understand the model, right? Yeah. However, there's assets and there's resources in so many different parts of our country, in so many different communities. And the hard part is making it accessible and having the understanding and what I really think, transparency to allow people to jump into this thing that is so culturally rich that people would love to be a part of in their, in their financial portfolios. But I would certainly say there's plenty of BIPOC communities with resources and assets to support how we're doing that is, up, is still to be said. I think one other thing that I wanted to say too around you know, the, the statistic of, of particularly the seven um, Broadway shows with black playwrights that have opened during this time, it fills me with such joy. And it's, it's such an amazing moment of representation. And it's really awesome to see how diverse all of those shows, all written by black people are too. That, I think that's such an amazing indicator of, of the breadth and width and nuance that, that is in, you know, existing in any community. What I really also want to see, and to, to reiterate how this could not just be a moment, but part of the forwarding movement, is seeing this much diversity in any other season. And also this much diversity in a season that isn't full of all this liability in the midst of reopening our business and COVID shutdowns and all of those things. So that's, that's actually the, the, the danger. That's the, the downside of what we're, what we're doing now. Basically all of these plays are opening in a, in a time when success is already, is, is just challenged, difficult, difficult to succeed is already. And now we're in a, in, a, in this terrible time. I hope, that the message doesn't become we couldn't attract audiences. I hope the the message becomes it was a great thing that you that we all tried to do. Let's try to do it again in better times. Or or just welcoming the fact that we all belong together in this space. That it's really not yeah. you know, I hate the idea, which is tough, that it's like, oh, is this an experiment of like is it viable to like be producing these types of narratives? I really mm -hmm. want to reframe it. You know, this is even in my own personal dialogues that I'm having with folks, instead of being like, oh, well, that wasn't successful or that wasn't whatever. We're actually saying like, oh, how does this open up the door to this person's work or this person's catalog or who they're in relationship? Because, you know, theater is so, it is, it contains so much potential for healing that we have to uncover during this time, right? Absolutely. But if, we're telling, if we're not telling the stories to bring all the parties to heal so we can all be convening in this space, 
we're doing half the battle. Well, I think I think part of the part of the battle has been to bring the voices of uh, the the un the lesser heard voices to the stage. The other important thing is to develop more producers of color, more BIPOC producers, because they're the people that will have the invested interest in, in getting those voices onto the stage. Uh, there are there are there are non BIPOC there are white producers who have an affinity for and an understanding of the importance of, of uh, less the less usual voices. But in general, I think we need to develop more BIPOC producers. I know Stephen Bird and Aaliyah uh, Jones Harvey have a, a program that they're doing with Columbia. And I know Rashad Chambers has, has a pro pro program that he's also doing. So that, that gives me as much hope as the fact that we had seven plays open and some close already on, on Broadway. Yeah, um, I also think we... Yeah, it's, go ahead, Tara. Tara. Oh, no, no, I want you to repeat yourself. I'm sorry, because I didn't hear you. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, absolutely, Bob. I, I really think it's about the integration, right? You know, diversity can't just be on one side. For us to really get to the point of belonging, we need to say, how do we need to be inclusive at every level, right? So often, optics runs that, conversation around how can we prove that we're more diverse and inclusive so we start on the stage we start with who wrote the show but a million decisions are being made in this these collaborations we all know this how many collaborators are involved to make this herculean effort of a new production happen and making sure that we have enough perspectives to be responsible and reflective of the work in the communities we want to be engaging with in every room is the work not just about how y'all know yeah. <laughs> yeah and also part of that work too is being specific um because something i've been sitting over here was something that you said bob about you know you know bipoc work on broadway and i was like let's be specific there are no native actors, no native playwrights, no native directors, no native producers on Broadway in over a hundred years. So that does not include me. <laughs> that does not right. include a lot of people, right? And also um, like black artists and black folks in this country have a very specific experience. So by lumping them within people of color is also inappropriate. Like we need to be specific because this is how we get true equity is being specific, being <laughs> honest uh, and being very clear and explicit about how these different lines of equity manifest and where they don't manifest and also being acknowledging the reason why well, well, many reasons why, but a huge, a huge, huge impact that we can't ignore of how we have these like seven black shows that came on Broadway is the decades and decades of advocacy work done by black artists in this country. Decades and decades and decades of that work. Anyway, so that's just something I really want to throw in here is y'all don't say BIPOC if you don't mean BIPOC. Like if you don't have native people doing stuff, don't say BIPOC, you got no eye. You can't be yep. doing that. And like you gotta be specific. Yeah, and that's part of like, I think the real work in the is the specificity because then we don't have the data to also assess our work, right? And it's wonderful to celebrate like, oh my gosh, look at all of these these black playwrights that we've welcomed into Broadway in right. this. And we can actually look and be like, oh my gosh, great. We're making inroads here. We're making all of these areas. But 
say it's black so we can celebrate that and be like, oh, where's the gap we haven't filled? Oh my gosh, there is there are a few Asian playwrights that are working in these lanes, and here is a Southeast Southeast Asian playwright that is different than this Asian playwright. And how can we actually create more diversity in one area of this conversation in the same way that we're doing? You know what I mean? So I think the data can actually help us when we're specific so that we can analyze our work, celebrate what we've accomplished, and also get to working on the gaps. Okay, well, like I said, it's difficult to have these conversations because nobody nobody really wants to have these conversations and misspeak. So, you know, if I misspeak, I miss I misspeak. You know, I I as I was saying it, I was very aware of the fact that it was it was black it was black playwrights and black producers, and I'm very aware that that you were underrepresented, and and also I'm also under, aware that a, the Asian population is also underrepresented. I don't know what my, my I'm, I wear braces. I'm wearing braces, so it's, it gets in the way of my talking. So, I mean, but I mean, if I can, Bob, again, another, I promise y'all, I'm full of all of this, like, hope. I preach a lot. Anyway, is, that's, I think that's another barrier, is fear. Because, yeah, like you just said, no one wants to come into these spaces and make a mistake. But I think, again, which is a popular misconception, is that if folks make a, make a mistake, they're going to get yelled at by the angry Indian. <laughs> That's not true. No, what we want, it, humility is a huge part of this work. And that comes with tackling white fragility that's internalized, but also knowing I want you to have that mistake in these spaces and then not take up more time to feel sorry for yourself, try to make excuses. Absolutely not. This is the space to make the mistakes, learn and move forward, you know, yeah. without bearing that emotional labor onto like the underrepresented peoples in the room. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyway, so I very much welcome mistakes. And when I consult and Adam, when we've consulted together, we've said a lot like this is the space to ask the questions you think are stupid or ask the questions that you're scared if you ask ask people are gonna like cancel you or like work terrible things are going to happen the world's gonna fall apart anyway like, so these I'm, are, I'm gonna take you with on your word on that since it's yeah. six, 620 yeah. I want to ask the people in the room to basically you can turn on your turn on your uh, mics and come in and ask a question I would prefer if you would raise your hand virtually so I can call on you yeah okay Zilla I also want to share and continue to ground this space too is you know and I knew we would circle back on this too with the way that you've been holding this space, Bob, is exactly the work that has to be done, right? And I believe that, you know, it's part of our philosophy, Tara and I, that we hold the space in accountability, right? And exactly just how, you know, we like, we have to address and we have to speak and we have to talk about the, the, the issues that are on the forefront. And there's going to be emotions around that and there's going to be reactions and we feel like we got it wrong or we feel like someone's yelling at us or whatever, but we're actually not, we're not, we don't have to take it as offense, but we have, we do have to hold this, the space accountable. Right. And it's not about good or bad. And it's not about personal. It's just about us saying the things that are usually never said. So, so I have to do a little housekeeping. I just want to tell everybody, uh, one at a time, I'd like you to come into the room. I don't want everybody to come into the room right now. I still want to keep the focus on, on Adam and, and Tara. So uh, Gr Gregory had his hand up. Zilla, you came in first. Um, I don't know who wins. <laughs> yeah, please, Gregory. Oh, me? Okay, cool. Yeah. First off, um, thank you all for the work that you do. I wrote a show that is predominantly Spanish-oriented. 
And I would like to have it commercially produced. However, I don't want it to appear as if I'm culturally appropriating the uh, source material in addition to the BIPOC and Latinx casting, because that's those are the people who is best are who are able to tell the story best. How can creators like myself, because I'm white and I'm Jewish, be able to tell stories that are a cu- culturally appreciative rather than culturally appropriating stuff? I feel like this is my life every day. I get my my inbox is full of well-meaning uh, white folk wanting to write native stories. <laughs> um, so what I can offer is number one, you got money, pay consultants. Uh, can you pay a co-collaborator, have a co-writer, and if they want to change things that you've written, be okay with that. Something that I do as a playwright, which is really really powerful, is is that I include inclusion writers in my contract. So only Native people can direct my work because with all of these Native plays, I say all two, that are being produced, they're not being directed by Native people. And so that's how you can really put power and agency in that space. When you work with dramaturgs, when you work with a design team, especially the director, being of that community, but also using consultants. Cultural consultants exist. Even though I'm Native, specifically Seminole Muskogee, um, I've written a Cheyenne play and I paid out of my own pocket multiple <laughs> shy and cultural consultants because natives were not a monolith. You know, it's the same thing in the greater Latinx community in the greater Asian communities in the greater black community. Like we're not a monolith. There's lots of different things going on everywhere. Um, so I think those are a couple of tactical things at the top of my brain, but I think number one, before you start, it's a little late now, but in the future, ask yourself the question, why do you need to tell that story? And have a damn good answer because a lot of people are not as nice as Adam and I. Uh, and they're going to come in with assumptions. And if you can't think of a good answer, why you? And also, spoiler, if it's no one else is telling this story, do some research. I have a feeling they are. Anyway, have a good answer. And if it's not a good enough answer, it's not your story to tell. Or maybe it's an opportunity to collaborate with folks of those specific backgrounds that you're writing. Adam, do you have anything else to add? Yeah. This is my life every day. So. I think this is such a, a great question to open on because I do believe as artists, you know, we're inspired by the world around us. And that's, that's a beautiful thing, right? And I think those impulses are meant to be interrogated and explored too. And you s- clearly explored impulses throughout your entire career or education. And I think it's just about building in where's my intersection and where's my access point and how far do I follow that before I need to build other seats at the table that I'm building so I can continue to level up wherever the ambition or expectations are in accountability to the intersectionality of this moment, right? Because we're not monoliths, no community is one monolith, it means that we're all intersecting together. We have belonging. That's the reality. But if we are saying that all folks have the ability to connect to all cultures, but no one has the ability to represent any one culture by themselves. So it's just about that interrogation. Zilla, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I would love to. I wanted to say thank you to Tara and to Adam. Tara, I don't think I've ever heard anyone be so emotionally scraping, blunt, brutal, and also protective of the other people in the room 
who may or may not need that protection, right? So I wanted to recognize the silence of the Indigenous voice and the power that you carry when you come forward. In I put out a question in the chat and right away I get, you need to read this, stop doing mislabor. If I, I'm going to put myself in front of you, go ahead and take this, take me, like let me be a tool that you teach or you use me as a training point. I'm a white person raised by an Indian man who also traveled with the Lakota people who is white and have Ethiopian sisters. And like, it's a huge, huge mix. How does somebody like me ask a question and be a support? I asked for bullet points. I didn't mean to make anyone do mislabor of emotional work, but I mean, what actionable things do we need? I'm from a different industry. We can't talk anymore. We have to do things that are measurable. So, so Zilla, and I would uh, love your let, answer. Let, let them turn. Let them. Uh, I don't want to run out of time. That's all. Just. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I'm willing to sound like the idiot. I'm willing to be the idiot, and I would love it. Let, if let them answer your questions. I'm going to leave that. This the only reason I joined this meeting today was because an indigenous voice was included. Yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've done. I want I, Adam. I want to. I want to hear from you first, and then I'll throw other things in. Not because I don't want to answer personally, um, but I'm also cognizant of my own self. <laughs> my words. I want to hear Adam. Thanks, Tara, and thanks, Zilla, for for that sharing. You know what I mean? Sorry. Yeah. Certainly. Anytime we're we're sharing our own stories, our identity, that's that's emotional labor, and that's very much felt in this situation. I don't have a clear answer for you, and I want to come alongside you because there is there is only the the responsibility that you can actually. <laughs> uh, I.e. bullet points, yes, 100%. But when it comes down to where is your fight and where is your burden, I think that's what you're you're asking, right? Is that yeah? And and how can I support without ever putting it on you? How can I best support without making you carry? Yeah, asking those questions and following through with what feels actually most human. And that would actually be the most care. Sometimes I hear from folks that are interested in being supportive and, you know, we walk together and we do things and it actually turns into like, oh, that was a little extractive, right? They were actually trying to be in support so that they could actually educate themselves or, or get some value or like move their journey together and and that's real and that's fine and then there are other folks that when we're all going through grief is another great example I, I often share how helpful is it to field a lot of texts and a lot of calls from people who say hey what can I do I know that your loved one just passed away I'm here I can do anything. Let me support. And now that person has to do the responsibility to figure out how to support that person to support them. How much, how much of an alleviation is it to hear someone just say, Hey, I actually just sent you a, a, a seamless gift card. I'm really thinking about you right now. Hey, you know, we're going to drop off some cookies and some 
and we're going to take your kids and babysit them. Tell me if that's not appropriate on this day or this day. You know what I mean? Showing so we up. offer the action and we, we, we listen for the acceptance or not. Show up with real actionable ways that you no. can contribute. Forgive me, but we have three more people with questions. Thank and Adam you so doesn't much. have a lot of time. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Also, no, I mean, speaking for my own self, time is relative. Like, I know we had till 6.30. But for my own self, Adam, I'll let you speak for yourself. Yeah. Uh, if folks want to continue to ask questions, we go past that. I don't have a problem. Because I feel as though, like, we're having this, like, generative space. I and mean, I would love to be a resource. And the one last thing I want to throw out um, from um, Zillow's question that Adam added is... You know, maybe don't walk up to a random person on color on the street and ask questions. However, there are consultants who do this for a living. Like Adam and I are consultants. We do this a lot. <laughs> and so you don't have to worry about our emotional well-being. Like I speaking for my own self, I got a whole practice. I'm okay, y'all. I'm okay. I get paid to do this. Don't come up to me in my recreational time, but I get paid. Talk to me. I'm okay. Like you don't have to worry about me so much as a consultant, but yeah, go to consultants, go to folks who have self-elected to be in this kind of space. Don't just go up to your one friend of color and ask them these questions when they didn't consent to be in that kind of emotional supportive place. Carolyn Brown, would you like to come in and ask your question? Uh, yes, and this question is for Adam, and this is regarding the injury standard group that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, my question to you is that you said that you're cultivating um, BIPOC investors. And I wanted to know um, how can like self-producing artists or playwrights um, benefit? Because are you cultivating investors to take advantage of say the next great work that's coming from Lynn Nottage and Katori Hall and Susan Laurie Parks and the late August Wilson because everyone wants to produce um, you know, August Wilson work. Uh, or are you looking at new writers and new works from the lesser known, well-known well -known names in terms of you know, BIPOC playwrights? Yeah, that's a great question. The first step is around collective economics, right? Us being able to pool our finances together. And then after that, it's about decentralized leadership. So from our community, we say, hey, what work excites us? And how do we decide what we want to support? So that comes, it's generated from the community together. So it's not any one specific thing. And I can't tell you what we will end up being invested in our entire portfolio because it's just not my decision. It's the decision of all of us and how we move together in, in our dialogue around what is accountable to our threshold of responsibility. So, so can I be self-serving and get your contact information and let you know about the work that I'm doing? Oh, absolutely. And please, I'll drop the, the, the link to, I, I believe Tara dropped it earlier to the standard group. Check it out. Um, there's all of our contact there that you can you can hear more about what we're doing. And and I'll also say, as I mentioned, we're building it with the empowerment of BIPOC folks at the forefront. However, it does serve everyone. It's actually an open offering to all folks that are interested in being accountable to practicing in these types of, of ways and, and values. Carol, Carolyn, you might want to check the chat. Your fan club is here. I see. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, David. Hello. Um, yeah, so I'm a Southeast Asian playwright, but throwing out there, I'm also um, a cultural critic for the BIPOX Critics Lab at the uh, Kennedy Center. Oh, yeah. um, that's, that's a good step to getting um, people 
that are unheard, the voices of the unheard, into the criticism pool, um, because a lot of critics are white. Um, generally, do you know, yeah, like, so we are trying these social media resources and stuff. Do you know any other sort of resources that could be really good to get our voices out there as critics? As critics particularly? Or? Yeah, probably critics for theater, particularly, um, maybe just generally arts too. I'm going to take a second to, to really figure that out because especially I'm not, um, as well versed in the, the critical world too. Um, my, my work and my practice is, has not been as engaged in, in where those resources are. Let me take a second and, and think about what communities I am in part of because, and I, I say that too, it kind of sets up a different practice is when we're engaged in this work, it's always in the room, right? If we're actually building the roads reciprocally, anywhere you want to get, and this is my biggest advice to producing in general, build reciprocal relationships and whatever you need will always be in the room. It not, might not be immediately next to you, but it's in the room, if that makes sense. So let me think about that. Thank you. And then for my own self, I'm real familiar with the BIPOC Critics Lab. I'm like a huge fan. Love it. Everywhere I go, I'm just like, oh, you, you looking for some critics? Here you go. Uh, being cognizant that I'm like a freelance artist as well. Um, and then my theater that I run is a youth theater specifically. And so we have a little thing, different things going on. And it's a culturally specific organization. But anyway, yeah. And so I think, I hope that's also helpful that like, speaking for other freelance artists I've been in rooms in, like we're very loud. I'm very loud that when theaters do my work, either as a director or playwright, that white people frankly have no business critiquing my work because I write in a decolonial lens that's not within the Eurocentric scape of theater. So it's like apples and oranges. If you never encountered an apple, why are you trying to critique it? it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I usually point the theaters I personally work with to the critics lab. And so I can't think of anything like special. I mean, I'm loud on Twitter and I tell people there too. Uh, I do hope that it's a little, uh, a little comforting to know that there are freelance artists like myself who are constantly like, go here, go here, go here. Don't critique my, sh like, do not bring in Peter Marks from the Washington Post to critique my show. I don't want to hear it. Um, full offense to Sir Mr. Marks. He's living in DC, y'all. Fun time. Anyway, right? Uh, so I hope that's a little helpful. <laughs> I actually thought about um, foundational support as well, from the Ford Foundation to Mellon to NIFA particularly. NIFA, the New England uh, Foundation for the Arts, has specifically a grant uh, section for all of their um, artists that they award um, financial support to, to potentially bring in writers right? To amplify their work, to shadow the development of their work. And I think reaching out and creating those relationships can also create networking because they have missions for diversity and inclusion and they're supporting work that is diverse and uh, multifarious. So it's important to have writers and critics in connection to the projects and the artists that they support. I, I want to just uh, confirm uh, or underscore something that you said, Tara. Uh, having run a play reading series for 22 years, it, it took a couple years to figure it out. Well, it took more than a couple years. It took quite a few years to figure out that the works that were recognized were the works that the readers could identify with. And I started making conscious decisions to bring uh, readers on who would have the ability 
to understand the other voices that are not the familiar voices. So I, I, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, some people just do not hear your work the way you hear it, and they, they need to learn how to. So uh, uh, one last question that before, because uh, I know that, that Adam has to go. Um, Arlene, can you come in and, and ask your question? Up, am I up there? I am. Hi. Yeah. Well, you know, I, my question was some of who were answered, but uh, I am white, as you can see. But I have done many shows in the past twenty years. They're all black cast, black musicians, and like Wild Woman, don't have the blues. That did very well in Harlem, in in Midtown, and Japan. Uh, but I will have as the show goes on somebody of color will tell me, you know, it's not, which, which hasn't happened yet because they're more educational. I think that's a good way to start with some educational shows about, you know, like, like Rose and Reparations, this show I have now. So it talks about reparations, about how white people were given, you know, land where black people weren't. And, and, uh, well, that's a, that's first part of it. But then I add in some you know, there's, there's singing, there's a little bit of humor, there's how to clap on the backbeat, um, that, I, you know, inviting... Um, Arlene, first for time, I just want to ask you, what is, can you, can you put this into a question for... for, for I guess nice I, 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 it started out as like, where can I go to get, you know, smaller places to get this, to educate, to get black and white audiences, which is mostly what I have. Are there any resources that I can you know, educational theater, I guess. Um, I, I mean, to, to have a more comprehensive answer to your question, I would have to understand, you know, who you're in relationship, who have you been talking to this work about and, and who haven't you? I mean, of course, if it's an educational route that you want to go in, theater for young audiences, there's, uh, there's adult education. I mean, there's certainly institutions of higher education, but at a certain point, I'm wondering what the um, expectation is is for this process, right? Is it just to be seen? Is it is it a commercial project? What is the purpose for the transaction that you're not, I, I assume, being fulfilled with? Yeah, to get it seen and to educate people that, um, you know, in, in a way that it's comfortable. Because to educate, you know, whites also, I, I've done other things that, well, even South Africa played my reparations, uh, you know, I had people educated. Uh, and and that, was, that has been my goal in the past over 20 years to interview, to, to give this to white people to, in, a, in a, something that they could swallow that they will learn, you know, maybe just even a little bit of something that they can take with them and say, oh, yeah, maybe like white privilege to teach what white privilege is without like smacking them to educate. And and just about every show I've done has a little bit of that in there. Um, yeah, some final words, say, final words of advice, maybe. So yeah, that we can wrap up. Yeah, uh, I'm, I will say that in uh, these creative communities of color is, is that a lot of artists are told are asked the exact same question that you're asking. I've been asked a lot to write Native 101 plays so white people can understand that Natives are still alive and so on and so forth. That's a really inappropriate and terrible ask 
of a, of a creator of color. And I really want to challenge that notion of educational place for adults because uh, for white people specifically, because white folks can learn from plays that are culturally specific that are not meant to educate people on a one-on-one level. Like I think about slave play, uh, you know, Jeremy Harris is slave play. That is an extremely educational play for white folk. And his main intention is not, let me tell you, show you how anti-blackness is everywhere and this, that, and the other. It's not spoon-failed. It's not handheld. Like, y'all are adults. We don't need to handheld you. Like, I have a play specifically, fully Native cast. The very beginning of the play, one of the characters tells the white folks in the audience, this play ain't to educate you. You're going to learn from us just existing. And audiences' reactions to that have been they've learned so much. And so I really want to challenge you because that's really weaponizing white supremacy through the creative voice of of a BIPOC creator in that question and really challenge you to open your mind to what can be an educational experience for white audiences that doesn't result in like here is your black 101 white fragility 101 plays i mean sure those exist um but there's far far more that do far far more educating that aren't that and so i think it's an opportunity to read more uh go on new play exchange i mean there are so many listservs of black indigenous and people of color who write shows uh read learn um because i can guarantee you don't need the white fragility 101 handheld play I guarantee you're going to learn a lot more uh, from a lot of different plays. So, Adam, I wonder if you had anything else to your final words. Those are my finals, I promise. Well, that was that was that was really great. I think it's so much about earlier we were talking about who are we prioritizing, whose comfort are we prioritizing, right? And education, oftentimes, I don't think that we create education because the student says, this is all I want to learn, <laughs> right? <laughs> so sometimes we need to reframe the conversation. I want to thank Tara and I want to thank Adam for a, a brutally frank conversation. Uh, thank you. It was every bit as difficult as I expected. <laughs> so Thanks, so uh, we need to keep doing these things. and, and this I'm is, happy to do it. I do, I'll do it once a month if you want. This is exactly, I think, what... Um, I was sharing before, right? Where we need to find spaces where we can hold the space accountable. So just how we're showing up, it's not personal, but we have to say the thing, we have to react to what's said so that we know we're all speaking in draft oftentimes. And if we're not offering our first draft, we don't know how to edit. We don't know how to make it better. So I, you know, Bob, you shared so frankly and wonderfully, and it was so illuminating. And it brought us into like really, really amazing, valuable places, you know? But we're just gonna be like, we're just gonna react to it. We're gonna call it out. We're gonna say what it is. And we're holding the space accountable, but we can keep moving, right? We don't have to dwell and make it personal, so. (laughs) Yeah, I wish all my panels were like this. This is fun. This is great. (laughs) Oh, good, thank you. Thank you very much. I have to confess something that's going to make me look terrible. This is my first encounter with the phrase white fragility. So I didn't even know. I didn't even know it was something I had. So, so I've, lear- I've learned a ton from you guys. I appreciate your being with us today. I want to just do a little uh, thank you to the viewers who are hopefully going to be watching this at some point. I want to ask everybody to consider supporting True. We do these for free. If you, if you need it to be free, if you want to pay something, we don't stop you. So um, 
if you want to show your appreciation of what we do and the conversations we have, go to truedonate.com, T-R-U-Donate.com. Anything is, is welcome. Anything is, is appreciated. And, and uh, thank you, and, and uh, God bless everybody, and maybe I'll see you all next week. We're going to talk about the National New Play Network and um, some things that they offer playwrights and some things that they offer producers. I think it's a conversation for both sides. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about anything at all. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.